Hello and welcome to the Big Ben History Podcast and the latest of our conversations with the people in the room when Margaret Thatcher resigned to her cabinet in November 1990. Today's guest is unique. Caroline Slocop was the only woman in the room back then, other than the obvious one, and her account of what it was like to see the Iron Lady sob her way through her resignation statement inspired me to speak to all of those who were there to witness the end of her premiership. You can find conversations with all of those present on iTunes and other podcast providers. Just look for Big Ben History. Caroline recorded her experiences at Thatcher's side as one of her private secretaries in the excellent book, People Like Us. We started by her reading the description of Margaret Thatcher's final cabinet meeting. It is an awful scene, which over many years I've often replayed in my mind. The coffin-shaped table with all of her male colleagues seated around it, and her, the only woman in the room, apart from me. The private secretaries line up on a row of seats at one end, looking on, taking notes, me amongst them. She has been doing this every Thursday morning for 11 and a half years, and normally she would be in complete control. Today she only really has to do one thing, read out her resignation statement, each word of which she would have chosen carefully like every prepared statement she ever made. The words are there, but she is unable to speak them. Her voice, always a pressure point for her in moments of stress, but normally resolute when things get tough, breaks down as she starts to sob. There's no need for you to read it out. One of us can do that for you, Margaret, says Cecil Parkinson solicitously. But that isn't going to happen. Oh, no. They are going to hear how she feels. They are going to feel the hurt they have inflicted on her. And she is never, ever going to start something and then not finish it. It is absolute torture to hear her. And I suspect everyone in the room wishes at that moment that they were not there. And then when she finally manages to get to the end of the statement, she says, I doubt you all heard that, so I'll read it again. And she does with the same emotion. There is no doubt it is hard for her, the Iron Lady, to show her emotions in this way. In her autobiography, she places the full text of her statement in her account of that cabinet meeting without recording the considerable difficulty with which she articulated the words on the day. She does admit to giving way to tears when the Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay, reads out his tribute to her. Your place is already assured in history and says that she feared she might lose her composure entirely when Kenneth Baker says, The party love you. You are the greatest prime minister this century. And Douglas Hurd adds, The hardest thing of all is the hurt that this has caused you. Perhaps out of modesty she does not record in her autobiography what they say, nor does she appear to notice that others in the room, including her colleagues, are crying too. David Waddington is wiping his tears with a white handkerchief. Dominic Morris starts looking up at the ceiling so that his tears do not show. A sense of betrayal hangs in the air and the men look guilty. It is the raw hurt, anger and shock in her voice that really registers with me. That and her loss of dignity and the sorrow felt by everyone in the room that things should end in this appalling way. It reduces me to unexpected tears. Then as I try to fight them back, even sobbing as I leave the room. 
it's it's quite a passage. I imagine you're quite proud of that. It's not bad, is it? Actually, <laughs> rereading it, it's, it is it is quite it's quite powerful. Of course, I had written a, a diary of that day uh, only an hour or two, you know, a few hours later. So, um, you know, I really drew on um, both the memory of it, but also the words that I'd written down there. And it, it was an immensely powerful scene. I have thought about it many times subsequently. In fact, I chose to start my book with that scene, with the actual diary, diary entry that I wrote, and then pretty much end the book with the scene. And the bit in the middle is really explaining how we all got to that point, including for me the, the very surprising thing that I actually started to cry because I, was, I went into that room expecting just to witness a bit of history and as a civil servant, you know, who sees ministers come and go, and I'd seen other ministers come and go in other roles, uh, you know, I expected to be quite a matter of a fact about it. But really, it was such a deeply personal and complex scene. There was so much going on between the people in the room uh, that it was it was very upsetting. And the, the perspective you bring to it um, much more sharply than others who are there is the issue of gender. You use the word men a lot. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yes, I and mean, it's, it's, it's why I wrote my book. Um, I, I, I thought that my perspective as a woman was unique, not just on that particular moment, but also uh, looking across those last final 18 months. I, I was seeing her to a different set of eyes than the other men around me. And uh, I wanted to capture that and explain uh, how I saw her. And I think women have got a very um, complicated, not to say uh, often quite hostile, uh, set of feelings around Margaret Thatcher. And um, to a degree, you know, I certainly shared those before I worked for her. And I wanted to kind of work that through in my book. And is it fair to say that that you interpreted all of the breakdown between her and her cabinet uh, as a a failure of male-female understanding? Yes. I mean, clearly there were very real, um, very important policy issues at play. So it it wasn't all about gender. Initially, there was the um, ERM, the sort of uh, shadowing of the... um, uh, Deutschmark as a sort of prelude to creating potentially um, a single currency, uh, which was the issue between her and her, her Chancellor and her Foreign Secretary, Nigel Lawson and, and Geoffrey Howe. Uh, and uh, later it was the poll tax, and um, that drove a wedge between her and her party, really. Uh, and uh, at, at, at the very kind of deep source of this, there was an issue about the relationship with Europe and that relationship, that argument in the Conservative Party continues, or at least has continued to this day. Perhaps it has finally finished. I'm not sure it has. Um, so, that, you know, there, there were real issues of substance. But I think that the particular um, nature of the relationships was uh, influenced by gender. I think that uh, she felt... Uh, I think she felt um, that her authority was being challenged, that she was being disrespected. He was a woman who'd won three elections, uh, who was a kind of a giant of a figure on the world stage and had helped to end the Cold War. And uh, there were her, uh, you know, her senior but more junior colleagues who were uh, refusing to agree with her judgments. So I think she, she felt that that... You know, 
was partly a kind of gender issue. And I think that she felt like uh, quite a few women, I think, that she felt quite resentful about the fact that she felt that she had to do everything, that she worked so hard. Uh, you know, she mastered all her briefs. Uh, she even said in cabinet once, uh, not in my hearing, but um, on another occasion, she said, you know, why do I have to do everything? And Ken Clark, who reports this story, says, you know, none of them could really understand what she was talking about. But I think she felt that she had to do all the heavy lifting. She had to do the hard work. And then people were, were turning on her. And uh, what I saw quite close to was uh, how explosive she could be with some of her male colleagues. She was often very sweet in, in certain respects to people who had much less power than her, her private office and others around her in her kind of immediate work sphere. But where she was on a, a more kind of um, equal footing, uh, she could be really quite vicious uh, and badly behaved towards her colleagues. But actually, if you look at it closely, they were also being very badly behaved towards her. Um, for example, Jeffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson uh, came together. They actually went to her uh, together to tell her that she had to uh, cave in effectively uh, on uh, the ERN and gave her some words for her to say at the Madrid summit. And were basically bullying her at that point. And at the same time, Geoffrey Howe uh, was trying to remove her favourite private secretary, Charles Pohl. And, um, you know, she, she managed to kind of uh, winkle herself out of that situation successfully. But, the, you know, this, this sort of dynamic, I think, was uh, something that um, continued over that and just got worse in some ways over those 18 months uh, that I worked with her and saw her, you know, that led up to this moment in the cabinet room. And um, she definitely felt betrayed by them. I think she said to a TV documentary after she'd left power that uh, it was treachery with a smile on its face. And I think for the men, I think they, they found it quite hard to deliver the coup de grace. You know, I think they, they, they struggled, but they also struggled to work with a woman. And some, some of them, you know, have even admitted it. Jim Pryor said that he, he you know, he's, he was a male chauvinist, basically. And Ken Clark has said that he thinks that quite a few of her colleagues really found it very difficult to accept the authority of a woman. So I think there was a, you know, a particular dynamic going on, and I think it meant that she probably hung on longer than she should have done, and she let things get to a, a more poisonous state than she should have done, really. And um, likewise with the men, they just couldn't handle each other. And I suppose that one of the things about that cabinet room scene, which came home to me as a relatively young woman, 34, 35, is just how personal politics is. It's not just the issues, it's the personalities. Of course it is. And to, to, to go back to your reaction, um, you're a civil servant. You necessarily, I don't think you're particularly sympathetic to her. She hadn't treated you particularly well in terms of your career, um, but you cried. Was, was that a woman-to-woman connection? Yes, I think, you know, absolutely. I really felt for her personally. And... Um, it spoke to me, that, that sense of uh, being a woman, being so vulnerable. And she was showing her vulnerability for the first time that I'd ever really seen it. And I think it's very hard for women to show that vulnerability because you feel that if you do, you, you, you know, that the knife will come you know, straight through the chest. Um, 
and women are seen as emotional. So to show emotion uh, is to show weakness. So to see that, you know, the, 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 the person, the woman um, at that moment, uh, you know, metaphorically almost naked, as it were, she had no, she had none of the trappings of power at that point. Uh, it was it was very moving. Talking about Margaret Thatcher, but you also speak in, in your book um, that her own relationship with women was extremely complicated. Do, do, do you see that as a, a product of her gender? I mean, she, I think at one stage they, they avoided presenting women candidates to her for jobs because they knew she didn't like working with women, which now would be illegal. Uh, um, do, do you think that was a, a, because of her generation or something to do with her unique personality? Yeah, I think it might have been illegal then, actually, under the Sex Discrimination Act. But um, uh, yes, I think it was. I think it, it, it was partly a generational thing. I think that she had always worked with men, and she developed a way of operating which uh, worked with men, and um, she felt comfortable in the working environment that she knew. And I think she did actually quite like, and I think. This, you know, is possibly not unique to her. She quite liked the sense of power of being the only woman in the room. I could feel it when we, you know, I used to accompany her on outside events and, you know, to go to receptions with her and things like that, dinners. And, you know, when we, when we'd walk in the room, you know, me beside her and she was the, well, we were the only two women there, but obviously no one was looking at me. Uh, you know, you could sort of sense that this was, this gave her a certain uniqueness um, that uh, I think in some ways she fed off. And I, I just think um, she, didn't, she didn't feel uh, particularly comfortable amongst other powerful women. She struggled perhaps with that relationship. It's not that she didn't like women because she certainly had people uh, who helped her on a daily basis who were women with whom, with whom she had a good relationship, uh, Crawfee. Uh, this is Cynthia Crawford, who sort of worked as a sort of personal assistant, um, being a case in point. Uh, but I think that um, she didn't she didn't get on with certain key figures that you might have expected to have to have for her to have got on with, like Geoffrey Howe's wife, Elspeth Howe, who was the deputy chair of the Equal Opportunities Commission, which was policing the Sex Discrimination Act at the time, and. She, she had, I think, probably, as is said, it was said that she had said that she did not want a woman private secretary. And I could never get to the bottom of whether she actually said that. But I think that there's evidence to support that. So for, for a long time, the word had gone out that no females should be put forward for the job. And um, my permanent secretary, who was uh, sort of recently arrived in the civil service, who was in charge of the uh, department, Department of Employment, in charge of the Sex Discrimination Act and other equalities legislation, said, I'm just not going to do this. So he put me forward. And as it happened, she had a new principal uh, private secretary who was doing the sort of first uh, leg of the competition, who hadn't heard this edict, uh, actually hadn't been passed on. His predecessor had started the competition. So he looked at it in a relatively gender-neutral way, and I emerged as the best candidate, and the, the sort of plan was, or, you know, the practice was always that the person, uh, he chose one person, put them to, to be interviewed by her, and if she didn't like that person, then he would put another and so forth. So she didn't have to go through all the bother of looking 
lots of different candidates. Um, but he actually asked the private office, he asked two people in the private office whether he should do this. So he obviously realised he might be on sensitive territory. And the one who'd been in the office longest, by far, said, no, she'll never work with a woman in that role. And the one who was relatively new uh, said, no, no, you should, she's the right candidate, put her forward. Um, and the other piece of evidence I have that this was a real ban, or at least a real uh, inhibition on her part, was that uh, Brian Griffiths, who ran the policy unit at the time, had asked her a year or two before whether he could recruit a woman, the first woman, to the policy unit. And, and the policy unit worked much less closely with her um, than uh, a private office, which was having you know, close daily contact. Policy unit would only have contact now and again, and often just written contact so um but he asked her just as a courtesy and she agreed but then he went back to her uh i think um around about the time just before my appointment and said you know can i recruit another woman and she said oh brian i think we should see how the first one does don't you uh which is sort of a completely unacceptable thing to say you know in the in the modern world it's a sort of story it's a sort of story um I tell about my bosses 30 years ago who are all men, if you know what I mean. It's, yes. it's not a story you hear normally from a woman. Well, I think it's important for, for women to recognise that other women can be misogynistic, and uh, it's, not a, it's not unique to her. I mean, for example, um, Florence Nightingale used to refer to herself um, as a man and said some quite nasty things about women. And Queen Victoria, uh, talking about, uh, I think, a, a duchess or some senior uh, member of the aristocracy who was supporting um, women's rights, as, you know, lacking any women, womanly feeling. So, you know, I, I think that there can be a tension there. It's not just men who um, can discriminate against women. But I think that, you know, there was sort of, like a lot of people, there were just different parts of her kind of psyche and uh, ways of thinking about these things. So I wrote a speech with her for the 300 group, which was a group committed to getting equal numbers of, of, of women and men in Parliament. And there's no doubt that she was sincere. She'd been to that group, uh, you know, as a member before uh, this invitation, I think on a couple of occasions, and she's quite sincere in believing that uh, women were a good thing in public life and that we needed more of them. It's just that when it came to the sort of personal, I think she, she felt that she was in unknown territory and she didn't quite know how to behave. And, and I think she also really liked men, and that's the other thing to say. Can I pick you up on that? Because, uh, I mean, uh, interesting, um, since we first spoke, uh, everybody I've spoken to, they all raised Geoffrey Howe, but they also all raised the role of Peter Morrison, her um, parliamentary private secretary who ran her leadership campaign and was by all accounts completely useless. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I mean, completely useless and an alcoholic and, and now a suspected paedophile. Um, I, th I think Barry Potter said to me, she, uh, she liked tall, posh men. Um, did, did she, she, does that come down to her being a woman? Did she, did she, did you see that she had a weakness for a certain type of man? And was that a, a flirtation if you like? Yes, I think she really did have a weakness for a certain kind of man. I think Dominic Morris, I don't know if you've ever, well, you probably have actually met Dominic, uh, is, is, is in the same sort of stable. Oh, yes. so, you know, he's tall, he's got a loud voice, uh, and he's quite posh. Um, I mean, he's a, a wonderful man, you know, um, and he's also got a nice sense of humour. I think she quite liked people who made her laugh, actually, um, and helped her to relax. And I think that uh, her own husband is sort of in that camp as well. And uh, I think she did like 
tall, posh, um, slightly military uh, bearing uh, type of men. And uh, I mean, I suppose John Moore didn't quite fit into this category, but I think she also liked being, you know, she she wasn't a person who in her professional world uh, wanted to be loved. You know, she was perfectly happy to do very unpopular things. But I think that actually there was an inner insecurity uh, in her uh, that meant she liked to have um, an image in the mirror of the people around her, which was incredibly you know, which was a flattering. And she liked to be surrounded by people who made her feel good about herself. And she really, you know, she, 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 she was sort of prepared, you know, she obviously in some ways quite liked fighting uh, with men and, and, and so forth. But I think at the end of the day, over a glass of whiskey, the sort of people she wanted to be with are people who, who you know, she liked and who visibly liked her. And I think there was an element of of, and of, did, of of flirting around certain relationships. I suspect there was with Ronald Reagan, for example, and uh, Gorbachev and Mitterrand. Well, why shouldn't there be? Um, and how, I mean, you, you, your subsequent career, I think you became, did you become head of the Equal Opportunities Commission? Have I got that correct? I became chief executive of the Equal Opportunities Commission. So, yes, as a chair and I was the chief yes. executive. Yeah. In, in, your career, in your career, in the area of equality and pursuing equality, how has your experience with Margaret Thatcher influenced you? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's how it, well, first of all, I think one of the things that I gained from her was a sense that uh, women could be powerful, very powerful, and that being different was a massive strength. You know, one of her strengths, I think, was that she was a sort of living, breathing challenge to the status quo. Um, so I really wanted to see more powerful women, even if I didn't want to see more Margaret Thatcher's, because I, I didn't share her politics. And in some ways, I thought she wasn't definitely not a role model in the way that she certainly worked with women. Um, but I think what I also got when I became Chief Secretary of the Opportunities Commission and uh, spent five years looking at why uh, women don't thrive, why they don't succeed, you know, how difficult it is to get to the top. I really began to understand much better why Thatcher was like she was. And I could see some of those qualities in her that I've seen in myself and in other women who are striving to get to powerful positions. You know, for example, the... Uh, the belief that you have to be better uh, than the people around you, the men around you, uh, you have to work harder, the sort of diligence that often goes with that. You know, she used to do all her boxes every night until the very end. And, uh, you know, she, she always knew what she was talking about. Um, you know, she didn't wing it. And uh, unlike one sort of senses, Boris Johnson does quite frequently. She, uh, you know, that kind of belief that if you work hard, you'll get respect and you'll get on, I think is one of the things that women believe. And I think, it, it, you know, it, 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 it did work for her up to a point, but she neglected the relationships. You know, she, she wasn't, as Nigel Lawson put it, clubbable. And I think a lot of women have found it very hard to break into the club you know, because the club is actually a men's club. You know, that's one of the reasons why she wasn't clubbable and probably didn't feel comfortable going to the tea room. Um, but, you know, she just didn't fit. And men, you know, crickets, sports, public school, all those things, um, you know, she just didn't have that to help her to kind of uh, 
form those relationships. So I think there's that, and I think that sense of, um, uh, you know, feeling that you are under challenge, I, I understood that, because a lot of women do work in a very, still work in a very challenging environment that doesn't really work for them. And, you know, they are put down. They are not, you know, they are not promoted when they should have been, as in fact that happened to Margaret Thatcher at an earlier point in her career. So I could sort of really relate to all of this. And I think uh, also her sense of a higher cause. I think a lot of women um, have a sense that they want to, uh, you know, they're not just doing it for themselves. It's not just pursuing their career. They're trying to do something that they really believe in. And that helps them to cope with a, a feeling that they shouldn't be pushing themselves forward. You know, because uh, one of the really kind of difficult things, I think, for women is that when they're assertive, they're often seen as aggressive. And, um, uh, you know, and that certainly happened to Margaret Thatcher, that I think that she's been vilified for being a strong woman. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, actually, that I felt that there's a sort of certain kind of uh, misogyny that leads to women who are strong being characterized in a very negative way, whether they're sort of witches or bitches or, or whatever has, has happened across the ages. And you, you alluded to it there. I mean, essentially she's brought down in a sort of courtroom coup, if you like, it's, it's all very game of Thrones. Do you think that sort of intrigue is, uh, Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's that syndrome that I was just talking about of thinking that if you do the work, if you put the work in, um, you know, you do your homework that, uh, and you're right, uh, then you'll win. And, uh, you know, it's not often the way that you do in politics. You do have to form relationships and have to have people on your side. And when, when the end came, she didn't really have those people on her side. Uh, they were, you know, prepared to go along up to a point. But, um, uh, you know, she didn't have the loyalty there. And I think Theresa May also struggled with that syndrome, that she just didn't, so she wasn't good in the tea room and she wasn't good at, uh, you know, she, she, she was cocooned inside number 10. Her advisors were probably too strong, certainly in the early days. Uh, you know, she's, uh, you know, she had a lot of enemies, Whereas John Major, when he moved into number 10, I worked for him for a while. Uh, you know, I saw his diary uh, that he'd, uh, you know, the, the, the bit that wasn't the, the Chancellor's diary came across with him, which included many, many dinners in constituencies, just wooing people and making friendships and relationships. Uh, when, when John Major came into the private office, he would often sort of come in and practice his cricket strokes. You know, it was a sort of bit of a metaphor for that sort of, you know, he was good at playing cricket. Whereas Geoffrey Howe, in his famous final speech, said that she as a team captain had broken their bats. And that kind of sums it up in a way, that she wasn't a team player. Yeah, there, there isn't that sort of patois that you can immediately slip into that, that men from a certain class, I guess, have a, a language that they that they've all been brought up on um uh i was i was going to mention theresa may but uh you've already touched her um we'll, we'll wrap things up i mean that that meeting um you say say it haunts you i mean when you when you're walking the dog you mentioned your dog or now in covid do you still do you still think about it well i do but i i i, I 
to be honest, I think writing the book uh, was my way of sort of exorcising that particular uh, memory. Um, because over the years, it sort of, you know, I, I just hadn't quite worked through how I felt about her. And I couldn't quite understand, given how I felt about her on the sort of surface of my mind, why I would cry at such a moment, because I was so convinced that she should go. So I think that um, the book has uh, sort of um, sealed the memory for me now. So I don't, I don't think about it much. But I do think about her a lot, because I think that her, the story that I tell in uh, People Like Us is still relevant to today. Really? I mean, really, there's so many things about it that I, I, I find of another era. One man, one woman surrounded by men. Um, just the, the, the lack of HR in the way she lost her job, if you like. Um, you, you still think it, it speaks to this age? I still do, because I think that when Theresa May resigned, you know, there was, there was you know, a similar set of issues going on there. You know, there was that viciousness towards her. Do you remember that phrase... Uh, some backbencher briefed the, the media that, that when she was going to a committee, they were heating the knife and they would twist it uh, into her front, you know, which is just, you know, that, so I, I think there's that misogyny. I think women are still not disrespected. Uh, well, there was another one I did. And I think, I think George Orbson admitted it. It was uh, chopping her up into bits and, and putting her in a fridge, I think. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's an extraordinary phrase. thing to say. And I think, you know, women are still not um, taken seriously or sufficiently seriously in politics. I think uh, um, one MP not that long ago said that uh, that women were still ridiculed for their high-pitched voices in Parliament uh, from time to time. And, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, Theresa May was still struggling to show herself, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the woman within, uh, as prime minister, uh, she, she feared to show any sign of emotion or weakness. And she got that, um, that uh, name, uh, what was it? The Maybot. Um, and then at the end, just at the end, we saw, you know, how upset she was and how she was, but she was still not trying, trying not to cry. Uh, so I think that sort of tension about the women's style in politics and men's style, um, you know, the sort of winging it clubability style that is sort of reached its, well, I don't know about clubability with Boris Johnson. Well, yes, clubability. Um, you know, that sort of the Boris Johnson wing versus the sort of, uh, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, well, both Theresa May and, and Margaret Thatcher both grew up in a sort of very religious, diligent sort of background, didn't they? You know, uh, um so it's it, it's it's sort of partly that that I think is is the issue, but I think also there are the 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 the, the being um, cocooned inside number ten, that sort of bunker uh, issue, and people getting too close and too powerful in government. I think they, it was the beginning of that syndrome in the, in Thatcher's day. I think she had become too close to her private office and Bernard Dingham. It's very different because they were civil servants, and, and nowadays those people would be, you know, chiefs of staff and political people. But I think those issues are still very live issues. And I think the other thing is the Brexit story, which, you know, it's perhaps gone um, off the sort of, uh, you know, off the sort of hottest temperature for a while. But I think that that was the beginning of the Brexit wars, what I call the Brexit wars in the Tory Party, and. Um, I think that's still really relevant. So I think there are many things about this which make this very current 
And it's also a very human story. And I think that uh, a lot of politicians are much more human than people realise, much more vulnerable. And that's so it was with her. That was Caroline Slocott remembering the fall of Margaret Thatcher. Her book is called People Like Us, Margaret Thatcher and Me. My name's Ben Munro-Davis. The music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening.